behalf of Teleosis Institute founder and executive director, Dr. Joel Kreisberg, uh, to our March 2016 bioconversation. I'm Reggie Mara, and I'm happy to welcome tonight's guest, Dr. Tom Janice, who's going to speak about a topic that's actually very close to my own heart, and that's poetry and narrative healing. Tom holds both an MD and an MBA and is the founding editor-in-chief of the Permanente Journal, an international medical and social science journal that includes both literature and the art. He's also a publisher of Soul of the Healer, Art and Stories, and of the forthcoming Narrative Medicine Anthology, both from the Permanente Press. During his nine years as an associate medical director of Northwest Permanente Medical Group in Portland, Oregon, Tom conducted relationship research with physicians with the highest patient satisfaction scores. He sponsors narrative medicine writing workshops for doctors and health professionals, publishes their quick writes, and co-sponsors the annual Taos writing retreat for health professionals as well. Please welcome Tom and my colleague, Dr. Gary Huffaker, who's a board member here at Teleosis, who'll be conducting the interview. Welcome, Tom and Gary. Thank you, Rick. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, very nice to be with Tom this evening and Reggie and Joel. Um, before we get started, I want to invite whoever is watching this either now or later to shift into a frame of mind that's receptive and open and uh, we don't necessarily want to encourage you to be entirely in your left brain. We want you to be sort of relaxed and accepting. And uh, this will be an experience, I think, that everyone will enjoy. So take a moment to relax. Um, and I want to just briefly tell a, a little bit about how I became acquainted with, uh, with Dr. Denise. Um, it all actually started with this book who, and I'm sure many of you have seen this book, it was the first book that I encountered that actually talked about integral medicine. So I was very excited. Ken Wilber wrote the intro, and a number of very illustrious uh, people contributed chapters. Larry Dossey, um, uh, Candace Pert, um, and a, a Kaiser Permanente physician by the name of Dr. Tom Janice, and so I was excited. I was a Kaiser Permanente physician, and since we can access other Kaiser physicians rather easily, I sent him an email as soon as I noticed his chapter, which was entitled Through Conventional Medicine to Integral Medicine, Challenges and Promises, and I have seen him on several occasions since then, and we have become friends. Last time we were actually together was at McGill University in 2013, for the whole person care uh, Congress is a wonderful meeting. Um, so I would like to introduce Tom, who's going to read some of his work for us, uh, and then we're going to have a discussion about it. Um, Tom's a writer of poetry and prose, an editor, as was mentioned earlier by Reggie, uh, a physician anesthesiologist, an integral scholar practitioner, and a friend. So welcome, Tom. Thank you very much, Gary. And welcome, everyone. Hope you enjoy a few bits of this. So we'll start out with um, 
Gary helped me pick a few pieces from my work, and we hope that the, the collection of it is stimulating for you and um, instructive. The first one is called The Day I Knew I Wasn't a Doctor. <laughs> when I caught up to the medical student hospital rounding group, they all ignored me. The attending professor, crisp in his white coat with sewn blue name, positions and titles across the front of his pocket of pens, abruptly stopped, turned only his head toward me, and across his shoulder scowled. Everyone eyed me like 11 lasers, all now displayed intense dissatisfaction. Distressed because I didn't expect this, I stood alone, shunned. Professor said, Eugenies, staging your own show? The patient wanted, now we're behind, this is critical work. I stayed with my patient because your questioning upset him, actually terrified him. That's dramatic. He was hurt by your open discussion of his case. This is rounds, you're wasting more time. He didn't understand what you said and misinterpreted most of it. Didn't you prepare him? The tip of his fingers shot out, nearly touching my nose. Not for an inquis inquisition, I gained courage through anger. Disparaging fat comments and general inhumanity. You're no doctor or ever will be. Emotion throws you off. You're a scientist, not a therapist. And I'm noting your impertinence. He thinks he's going to die. Well, he's right. Severe heart failure. He's got to deal with it, not you. He caused it. Your job is to examine, diagnose, and treat him, not hold his hand like a nurse. He turned, walked through the middle of the group, and led them down the corridor. Stunned, I thought, how could that be good doctoring? How arrogant. Do I need to be like that? Cold and calculating, he wasn't even phased. Why can't I be like that? This objective academic approach was like an intellectual beating of the patient. I must not be the right kind of person to be a doctor. I'm not going to make it. Wow. Well, that was a day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder how many physicians uh, can feel exactly what you felt at that moment. Wow. Well, I wondered, but I've read this piece to several people and to some audiences and got many comments that it was a very common occurrence. And I think maybe just now we're beginning to come out of that where the subjective and the person is as important as the facts and the matter, the physical matter. We're really fortunate that that's changing. Uh, I certainly remember this very vividly, uh, not in a particular case like this, but this feeling, um, do I need to be like that? You know? Um, 
And I wanted to point out something here. When you said not for an inquisition, uh, that really struck me because there was a turn in the conversation. At that point, you you were challenging him in a way that you hadn't up until that point in the conversation. And I just wanted to point out the fact that many times I think this happens, but we don't have the courage as young physicians to challenge the, the structure. It's so powerful. The blue letters, the pens, the white coats, uh, gray hair <laughs> that we didn't have at that time. So, yeah, I, I think that was that was remarkable. Do you remember how that felt to uh, to have um, the, the courage sort of boiling up in you through the anger that you had? Uh, yes. I don't think I would have ever done that, except I was already planning to leave medicine. And so <laughs> it, it didn't seem to matter if I uh, got thrown out or something. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't think I would have ever said that. Uh, yeah, that, uh, that's amazing. Uh, that's another story. We'll have to get into that in more detail. And um, uh, the other thing I wondered about this story as I read it and thought about it is, uh, especially if you were planning to leave medicine at that time, when did you know that you really were a doctor? Because obviously you became an anesthesiologist and, and so on. How did that transpire? Do you remember? It was kind of a, a circuitous path. Um, my next uh, rotation was in psychiatry. And that's when I decided to settle into medicine, that maybe that was the place for me. And maybe in particular being a child psychiatrist. So I did a year of pediatric internship to prepare and have some medical knowledge. And then I began to work in the emergency room and um, after eight or nine years went into anesthesia. So um, I got comfortable at least with medicine again through psychiatry. Oh, wow, how interesting. I never, I don't remember knowing that ever before. Uh, Reggie, do you have any? Any comments or questions about this piece? Well, just yes, as the uh, the one third of this conversation who doesn't have a, an MD and who but who has had interactions with the with the medical community, some some wonderful and some not so much. So, what I really like about this, um, especially in terms of how you know we, we're using the word healing at teliosis, um, is 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 Tom. I'm really grateful for you know your insight as you know, a prospective MD in this particular uh, vignette, and then, you know, as a, as a fulfilled one now, to you're really bridging the gap um, between uh, curing, which is the uh, territory of, of much conventional medicine, I think, and healing, which, which is what we're really speaking about here, um, which can take place with or without curing. So I'm just, I'm really grateful to hear your voice um, address that especially, but not only because, um, because you are an MD. So, yeah. Well, you may, may or may not know this, but when I went to medical school, the word healing was only uh, spoken in reference to wound healing. Okay. 
Okay. Yeah, I, I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a long time since then. <laughs> Interiority was was definitely suspect. Sure. Yeah. Well, shall we try another, Tom? What do you want to read next for us? Well, let's go into the operating room. Uh, this is called uh, Induction Blastoff. Surgeon paces around, looking, standing still, revving, revving, with great anticipation of searching deep in the bowels of the belly for a critical mass. Elusive below the tide of billowing intestinal waves. Anesthesia quickens for the sprint. Patient in, all jitters, afraid for life, at strange peace with death. Leads to rhythm, cuff to pressure, scope to chest, finger to pulse. Sweep a lash, asleep in two arm brain circulations. Not breathing, now paralyzed, tempting gastric acid welling up. Bag, bag, tube, bag, bag. Please, chest rising, not stomach, chest falling. What's pressure? How's pulse? Now, breath, whoosh, breath, whoosh, breath, whoosh. Gas in, lungs up. Rain out. The tube still dances precariously on a balloon. Surgeon cuts, skin spreads. The blood, what color red? The belly, still? Oh, peace. Not for a moment. So Gary likes that because he worked in the OR. Yes, that I mean that just nails it. Um, any anybody who's had surgery, um, but being in the operating room and having someone putting patients to sleep, that really that really struck home. So a couple of things um, I wanted to. I, I love the tube dancing precariously on a balloon. By the way, <laughs> that's great. Uh, People might not understand that when the when the tube goes in, you blow up a balloon around it so that it stays fixed, <laughs> but it's not really that secure yet. <laughs> uh, the other thing that just really struck me about this, other than the fact that it, it sort of takes me back to those many uh, surgeries that I've been involved with, um, was this this phrase in the first. Um, the first sort of paragraph about looking for the critical mass elusive below the tide of billowing intestinal waves. That's, that's wonderful evocation. <laughs> well, thank you. Yes. So now I'll, I'll jump in. I just really appreciate the, the as you know, Gary, you just alluded to this, but the, uh, the images here um, I've been in an operating room, uh, but but you know, I've never been conscious to it, uh, both for a couple of you know hernias and both hips replaced. So uh, it's it's interesting to have a, a a vague sense of what might have been going on out there when I was in the uh, 
you know, un, under the guidance of, of one of Tom's colleagues. So yeah, yeah. But the, but the, the image in here, the imagery in here is great. I just, what, what Gary just alluded to, the critical mass elusive below the tide of building intestinal waves um, is just, just great language. And um, I really appreciate uh, your bringing this poetry to, to an operating room. It's just, it's, it's quite wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. And it may also explain um, that anesthesia is a rather stressful job, right? That last line, um, not for a moment of peace. There's just no peace for a moment. And, and that's certainly true. Patients can go south so, so, so quickly. Um, so anyway, I, I couldn't help uh, noticing that reference at the very end. There's no time to, to relax and, and be peaceful when you're an anesthesiologist. <laughs> so while that's all going on in the, in the operating room, outside in the hallway, there's another activity set going on. So this is called Fixture. Only difference is she floats about. The surgeon doesn't notice this housekeeper in the hall who drifts into the doorway, worn by his heavy foot after foot. Once caught unaware, she stood in his path. Perturbed, he harumped until she sprang back. A cleaning woman has no name, speaks no words, eyes on her job, on the floor, mopping blood and water up. No way around her work, the surgeon walks right through it, feels no qualm, expresses none, stiff. She's plaster on the operating wall. Watch her step, it's wet, she mopped and muffled once to the surgeon, tracking through all day, saying nothing, nod or not. Good job, the surgeon said, looks good today. Oh, thank you. Most just say excuse me if they do. I know your OR job's so critical. Dragging bags ballooned with operating garbage from the rooms across the hall to piles along the wall. Then surgeons make more garbage out of life and death. The surgeon one day took a mop to help them clean an OR needed now. She joked he'd gone too far, couldn't help nor knew how. Thank you, doctor, though. We can do it really quick. You'll see the way we do it. The surgeon recoiled, dismayed a bit, disheartened. They never speak to her, drag a bag, mop a floor, housekeeping woman just in the way, in the hall, a fixture. Only difference is she glides about in those moments when no surgeons pass her by. And that certainly uh, brings back memories to me as well. Dragging bags, balloon, oh yes, oh yes. So many times. And hierarchy, hierarchy, wow. Uh, again, we see it here. Uh, it's so pervasive 
it, probably in the operating room more than any other place, really. Um, and necessarily so in some ways, right? I mean, unless there's a hierarchy, the OR, the OR would not function in a postmodern kind of way. <laughs> you know, listening to all the voices and so on. But this hierarchy uh, can border, it feels like it can border on oppression almost. Does that kind of ring true to you with this? Sure. And um, I think, again, I hope think things are much better where people realize through work with multidisciplinary teams, for example, um, process improvement work where people from all the disciplines in the OR and the hospital area sit together and become people with each other rather than just jobs. Mm -hmm. And um, all of it's important. I mean, the surgeon couldn't do their work if there wasn't a housekeeping staff to clean it up. Mm -hmm. and so they're as important for the function of the operation as anybody. It's really interesting the way you put it here. She has no name and she speaks no words, essentially. And that sounds pretty accurate, really. Um, no name, but if you have a team like this, all of a sudden you need a name, right? <laughs> yes. That changes this so much. And I, I don't think it, it um, I don't think it destroys hierarchy so much as it restores a kind of um, natural and normal holarchy, I guess is the way Wilbur would put it, uh, that's, that's necessary for the OR to function without being an oppressor kind of hierarchy. Right. In Australia, the Aborigines greet each other in this way. One will say, I see you. And the other says, I am seen. And so that's a bringing the person into existence. And so um, I think that's an important element of interaction and relationship is that people see each other and that they exist for each other. And, and this piece, actually, uh, is a way of saying to this fixture that she is, is seen, you know? Right. She, she is seen and spoken to, even. So I have, Tom, I have a, a, a question, because um, I'm reading this poem in, in two different ways, and they're probably significantly more than two. That, that are available. So one is the what you and Gary are now speaking about, and just the see, you know, I see you and I am seen, and, and this this uh, this cleaning woman is is getting seen through your poem, and so there's kind of a social justice aspect there. Um, but I'm I'm curious in in what way, if any, writing a poem like this, I know there are some coming that get are more closely attuned to your own personal healing journey. Um, but is there an aspect of healing for you in this poem as well, um, as you as you wrote this, you know, kind of juxtaposing the, the surgeon and the cleaning woman? Oh, absolutely. Um, and the writing of it, which took several drafts, trying to figure out the language and even the um, turning my feelings into meaning, uh, gave me a lot of insight as I wrote it. And 
certainly enlivened my sense of interaction with others after that. Yeah, great. I appreciate that. I mean, because as as a writer and a poet, I know that I, I tend to learn a lot at, well, based on the things that come out of my keyboard or my pen that I didn't know prior to it. So, yeah. Well, writing is is a creative act. Yeah. And yep. so things actually emerge uh, and are created in the writing. Thank you. What do you have for us next, Tom? So now we go to Saturday with Dad. Okay, good. So um, I've given writing workshops for physicians and other health professionals where they write for 10 minutes. And then if they choose to, they can share it with others around the table. And if they choose to, we'll transcribe it and uh, after edit, publish it for them. And so while asking people to write, um, several times I wrote myself and I ended up writing five pieces about my dad, which are collected in a piece called Doctor and Dad. And so this is the first part of that. It's called Saturday with Dad. Standing at my father's bedside in a Florida hospital, I remember two decades ago at nine years old, Saturday with Dad in our Detroit garage where he wanted to get some things done. Sweep it out, pick up the tools, screw in two new hooks to hang up the ladder standing against the wall. Straighten up after my brother and I created disarray playing ball hockey against the back door as a net. I never knew what I was going to help dad do. He made no list of jobs for me to finish for an allowance. It was expected that I would either see things that needed doing or he would point out something. Close off the driveway, move the trash cans and clean up any mess or scrub the matted grass off the lawnmower. And when I was finished, he would have another task waiting. Help him carry a new shelf over and hold it while he nailed it to the wall, or wash off the storm windows we'd just taken down for spring. All this infuriated me. I wanted to know what to do. I wanted a list so I could see the end of my workday and go play third base in the field three blocks away. I never realized until I reached his age what was most important to him. He wanted to spend time with me. He wanted to be with me, build our relationship by working together, father and son, on our day off from work and school. He didn't talk much or tell me many stories. His way was to work with me, show me how to do things integrating lessons I should learn so that I would grow up to be a handyman, a useful man. That's beautiful. Now that's an example, back to Reggie, where I didn't have the real insight about relationship until I was writing this. Yeah, yeah. yeah it is, and, and just, it's, um just how it unfolds. It's almost as you said that, that you didn't have the insight about relationship until you were actually writing it. And it's almost like the gradual uh, perspective broadening of the young Tom, 
who gradually grew into realization that um, my dad didn't want me to get work done. He just wanted to be with me. So there's, there's like, you know, there's, there's, there's two realizations going on, one as the writer, and then just kind of reflecting on the young child growing up to realize, oh, so that's what he was up to as my father. Yeah. Right. So that's beautiful. And just the images in there are great. I'm like, I can, I'm in the, you know, the, the garage and in the, the area with you, just, um, you know, figuring out what's going to get done next. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So thank you. You know, it's funny how as a kid, um, we never, never thought that our father wanted to be with us. We thought he just wanted to get free labor out of us, right? <laughs> and I just love the way this infuriated you because I felt infuriated when my dad had me pump the brakes while he was getting all the air out of the lines, you know, and I'd sit there and pump the brakes for him. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, I want to go play third base. I love that. I want to see an end to my work day, and we never, never think, you know, Dad just wants to be with me. Wow, that would have been an amazing insight for a young boy to have um, at that point in time, you know. But I guess we can't hope for evolution to uh, occur too quickly. So are you a handyman now, uh, Tom? Well, I learned a lot of things from him, but I'm not really a handyman. Like, I don't look for jobs to do around the house. <laughs> but if something has to happen, I can kind of do it. But um, there are some things I won't do. <laughs> Electrical. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he really wanted to be with you more than he wanted to turn you into a handyman, than it sounds like. <laughs> right. Yes. Well, let's go to the next. Uh... Okay, next, uh, we'll skip a couple. We'll go to our visits, um, and then my second father. Um, lying there physically and emotionally deeply injured, it hurt my father not to leap up and greet me smiling. And he was ashamed to trouble me, travel so far at such expense for him. Yet he delighted in my presence. He so rarely said how he felt, it made him cry. Let's see, Dad, the doctor's son said, rushing to peer at his belly. Because my father worked so hard for me to be one, he slid down the white sheet, revealing his pale abdomen, sliced open, now stitched up the middle puckered by a second row of bracing sutures, cream rubber drains hanging out the holes on either side. I'm so scared, he said, visiting me a month before as we walked through a clearing in the trees, the site of my new Sierra mountain home. I have cancer. He controlled an outburst of tears Naive, I sought to reassure, it'll be okay, Dad, don't worry. I should have said, it's frightening. I'm here with you, Dad. I'll be with you, Dad. And hugged him and walked beside him in silence in his presence. I could have grown into a father for him in that moment. Hmm. Hmm. 
Well, well that's not either something I would have realized at that other moment that um, I did later when I wrote this. I wanted to inquire about your use of the word naive, Tom. Naive, I sought to reassure. Well, at that point, I was actually naive to uh, improved communication, listening, and presence, for example, and being there. And um, I was also naive to um, how it feels for people when they have cancer, when they have to go into an operating room, when they're worrying about never waking up. Um, and also as people begin to ponder their end of life. So I was, and still am naive to some of those feelings and experiences that people have at those times. Yeah, this, the language in these, the last two sections, I just, beginning with what Gary, you just said, naive, I sought to reassure, it'll be okay, dad, don't worry. And then I should have said, it's frightening. I'm here with you. This, that's, I mean, that's the empathic response to meet someone you know, where they really are. And I, and I can't help saying, too, though, I, I see you say, I should have said. And I think when, when, we, when we look back like that, we have to um, practice that, that our own sense of self-compassion um, for whether we call it naivete or ignorance or whatever it was back whenever it was. And we think, wow, well, if only I had known then, um, you know, because at any given moment, I think we, we're doing our best based on what we know. But this is just that these last two sections here are very simple in one way. The language just it's it's very direct, but I think it takes in a very very complex and uh, an intimate uh, relationship. Um, in this case, between father and, and son, but but also between any two people. So I, I just I really appreciate how you how you told this section. Um, and I could have gone into a father for him in that moment. That's just beautiful. Uh, mm -hmm. so thank you for that. I hear you suggesting that, um, that we sometimes forgive ourselves for our na naivete. You yeah, know? yeah, I, I think, well, I, I think we have an, I would say we have an ethical obligation to be compassionate to ourselves because that's the best way to learn to be compassionate to others. And, we tend to have more compassion for other people. Um, so yeah, definitely to, if I, we can look back and forgive ourselves for real or perceived transgressions, I think it's important, yeah. Mm -hmm. So the last little piece of this five is called My Suffering Father. My suffering father moved me as I moved him from wheelchair into bed. An imperceptible wince is only display, enough that I almost lost hold of him, that I was causing it. So hard to help when you don't know just how. His enormous tolerance enriched me. Yeah, wow, again. So as you move 
your father, your father moves you. Isn't that interesting the way you played on that? That word, move. You know, it doesn't mean exactly the same thing. It's it's an exterior move and an interior move, right? Right. Yes. Well, and that was poetics emerging in language. That's beautiful. So tell me about your dad's enormous tolerance. This, I know you're referring to his putting up with his physical um, sort of challenges that he's dealing with. But when you use enormous tolerance, I'm led to think that you, he was tolerant in many ways. Yeah, I think that's an expression, Gary, of um, thinking back over my whole life, all the things he tolerated me doing. At two or three or four or five or 13 or 14 or at 16 when I was driving or, you know, there's so many times when um, he was tolerant of uh, younger behavior, as well as uh, his tolerance for um, having pain, significant pain, but not making it my problem or somebody else's and um, we're agreeing to be moved even if he's going to have pain in order to you know go for a ride in the wheelchair with me um, those are the kinds of things that's related to is that related somewhat to ownership uh, what i mean by that is um, your dad is owning his own feelings and even his physical pain and not doing what we so often do with each other is to give them to give that to somebody else, you know? Yeah, that's a really good point. I agree with that. That's lovely. And, and the, the the last five lines, the, the, the first three there, um, so hard to help when you don't know just how. I mean, any caregiver, any not even just in caregiving, but any any time, that the, that little triplet there, the, the three lines together, um, just speak volumes. That's just a great, a wonderfully concise, I would say, truth that you know especially the just how, you know, and, and the hesitation that's there if you're not really sure. So the, those are those are three beautiful lines from, from in my reading. So thanks for those. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, we could, we could think more about these. I like to, there's several that we didn't cover here as well. So you'll have to get Tom's book when it comes out and read the whole section about dad and doctor. Um, what do we do next, Tom? Well, we can we uh, should go, we can go to the pain clinic and um, talk about the soothing sound of water. It's a little prose piece. Sounds good. And why don't we yeah, let's do that next one, and then we'll um, you know, unpack that a bit, and then we'll open up and see if anyone has any questions uh, or observations or comments directly for you, Tom. If that's okay. Okay. Sure. Yeah, great. I didn't know the story until much later. 
In an otherwise ordinary moment in my clinical life in the pain clinic, Maurice, a lean 60-year-old man, sat quietly in a chair facing mine. His thick hair and bushy eyebrows hooded his French nose and thin lips pressed into a line. No one had either diagnosed or effectively treated his continuous upper back pain. They knew it wasn't infectious, metabolic, neoplastic, neuropathic, or osteoarthritic. When he heard, probably your muscles, it wasn't enough reason for him to stop and rest. He needed to keep working. Several doctors had already tried everything medical I could think of, except injecting the painful trigger points in the rhomboid knots, just medial to his right scapula, with a 23-gauge needle and two cc's of bupivacaine. This'll sting, I said. Maurice flinched, and I nearly hit the scapular wing, but held the needle still until injecting all of the anesthetic to break the ischemic cycle. Within a minute of withdrawal, he said, better, doctor, yes, much better, merci. At Maurice's second and subsequent visits, I injected the same painful points. Invariably, he felt immediately better, but the pain, worse with lifting, gradually reappeared and required another injection. During our visits, I never asked about his life, but he let that be. On completion of the four-visit program, when I said I couldn't justify continuing this treatment course, he said, doctor, my back's better. He pumped his arm like rowing a boat. But now I have a side pain. His right arm shot up like asking a question and his left index pointed across to his latissimus dorsi. Confirming the spasm, often a masked secondary, I injected that site for four weeks while he complimented at home with stretching and heat and no lifting. At series end, I said again, we have to stop. I know, doctor. So thank you so much for treating me during my difficult transition. Six months later, Maurice called one morning. Doctor, you helped me finish the rock waterfall I was building in memory of my wife who passed away a year ago. She so loved the sound of water spilling over stone. And now that sound eases my pain as I sit in silence and listen to memories flow from our life together. And so the ordinary clinical visit is transformed. It's taken to another level here, Tom. I wonder how many times we fail to do that when, when we just don't ask. If Maurice had never called you, you know, you wouldn't have known how significant those eight injections were for him. Right, that was pretty instructive for me um, to, to keep in mind uh, that there's a person there 
that I'm treating it happens to be in the anesthesia pain, pain clinic. You have tools, physical tools to reduce pain and such. But um, there's always something else there. There's a subjective element. There's a larger context. And I think it's essential to recognize that context and, the, and those subjective feelings and senses in order to be treating a whole person. You know, and the other thing about this, you specifically mentioned in the piece, I never asked about his life, but he let that be. And I think it's probably important to, to note that though you didn't ask him about his life, there are many times when it's perfectly appropriate to not ask about someone's life. In fact, there's sometimes when they don't want us to ask about their life. So the fact that he called you, though, that was really neat that he took that initiative because um, in that case, imagine how much less richness you could have you would have thought about this story in, in retrospect had he not told you. You know, this would have been just another ordinary one out of 10,000 visits, you know. So we're, we're, I guess we're lucky when our patients um, let us know that there is a interiority that needs to be honored here. It's beautiful that it ends with this soothing sound of water you know, I can almost hear that in our fountain. <laughs> I, I think of all the teachers who never hear from their students about a difference they made in the, their lives, but it happens all the time. And it's unfortunate that, that there isn't more feedback. Did you ever see the movie Mr. Holland's Opus? Yes. Uh -huh. Beautiful example of exactly that point. Yeah. And, and, you know, how often, you know, I just ran into the wife of one of my neurology professors and told her how important Don Miller's contribution to my medical training was, and she was very gratified. Um, so th this kind of thing is, is something we don't do enough, I think. So Reggie suggested we ought to get to some people and questions, if there are any. Yeah, so why don't we just take a moment, those of you who are, are with us here, two ways you can ask a question. One is if you put your cursor down on the participants uh, tab at the bottom of your screen, you can click on that and uh, raise your hand. I see one already. We're going to have Lois up first. Um, or you can chat with Joel in, in the chat room. But right now we have Lois McNaughton as a, uh, our colleague here at Teleosis who has a question for um, for Tom. So go ahead, Lois. I think you're you're unmuted. Yeah. I'm start my video there. Hi, Tom. Mm -hmm. yeah, thank Hi, you Laura. for sharing your poetry. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm curious about your experience with the writing workshops with doctors and uh, what you perceive that how they're responding to it and how that might be impacting them in in their role as as physicians. Sure. A couple of things. I remember one, uh, one of the physicians said, you know, I think I understand now the importance of story, but the idea that I was part of the story is just baffling. 
And so that was a keen insight. Um, I think when they write people, uh, when you encourage them to write about experience, they recognize how full their life is, um, but it's usually denied for discussions about cases and treatment and such. And uh, it's really enlightening. People write about things they've held within them for 10 years. And when they write it and express it and others in the group connect with them over that, it's a tremendous uh, therapeutic uh, benefit to them. How do you think it impacts their ongoing relationship with their patients? Well, they have significant insights. I mean, some write about it directly where I now understand the importance of my communication and relationship with my patients, and I can bring that better to the visits. Very cool. Mm. Yeah. That's great that you're doing that. Thank you. Thanks, Lois. Anyone else, you can raise your hand through the participants uh, tab there at the bottom of your Zoom screen, or you can send us a, a quick chat if you have a question. Um, and if we don't get anybody in the next 10 seconds, it's actually a great benefit if we don't, because we're going to ask Tom to read something else. <laughs> I just wanted to say real quickly, um, Tom, your comments there made me re realize when you talk about the physician having a narrative and not realizing that they're in the story, I think just honoring the story helps the physician realize that every patient's narrative is equally as important. You know this uh, statistic that we interrupt our patients after, what is it, 23 seconds or something is the average? Um, we're, we're very anxious to stop the narrative sometimes. and by emphasizing this with these young physicians and other physicians, uh, I think you're helping to increase the honor that a physician can, can uh, place on the narrative of the patient. Yes. Well, so we have time for one. I'm glad we had time for this. This is about my encounter as an anesthesiologist with um, a young woman who had Down syndrome, which is particularly difficult because you have to make sure that you can put a breathing tube in before you do that. And uh, there's several issues with their physical structure and such, as well, as well as their mental understanding. So this is called, there's hope in that hole. Ready, sitting, waiting in bed for surgery on her tonsils with her mother standing closely by. She was 26, but looked 15 and acted like a child, as do most this old who have Down syndrome. When she had her teenage uterus out, she weighed 100 pounds. Twice that now and just as short, though shielded by her mom who said, see what it did to her? This girl's face was plump and pink, her eyes were bright and blue, and she smiled so sweet and soft. Mommy, take me home, she said, when I asked her to open her mouth real wide, and all I saw were her teeth and her tongue. No room in there to find her airway, I despaired. 
how was I to put this trusting, fragile soul to sleep with no hope of breathing for her when she stopped breathing for herself? Things looked up when I looked down her throat with a light and a tongue blade. While she awed and gagged and choked, her clinging mother gasped and cringed. My eyes groped for a little more, for an airway whole with cords. Delighted with relief, I could see way down deep and exclaimed to myself, there's hope in that hole and that flash-lit path between those huge red tonsils. Mm. That's beautiful. I love these trusting, fragile souls, these Down syndrome kids and, and adults. And you obviously do too. That's an example, again, of how physicians um, have to be aware of the, the person in front of them as they undertake their technical task of whatever, of what sort, you know. Difficult. Oh, yeah. With those huge tonsils and that anatomy, wow. I, I'm just imagining. And I like her smiling so sweet and soft. Isn't that true that these kids have such sweet, soft, smiles and maybe the word naive even comes to, <laughs> to mind. trusting and yes yeah. yes yes so tom i have a question which is uh, not not that piece specific but it's a question that always intrigues me um with with the writers and those who who um, enjoy writing and use it um for, for good uh what were you? Did you love writing as as a kid? Did you? When, when did you find it? And and when did you really start using it um, in this specific role um, for healing? Well, I started writing when I was in high school. Um, I thought I wanted to be a writer, but because I'd had a, an operation on my lower leg when I was about thirteen. Um, I became enamored with medicine, and so I followed that path. And it was only much later in medical school that I started writing poems uh, after the E.E. E. Cummings style, you know. Yeah, yeah. good. Um, so I'm gonna take one last look at our callers, and we're coming near the top of the hour here. Um, I don't see that anyone else has a hand raised. Um, Gary, go ahead. I have a request. Um, if we have a minute, that Tom read one more called Cephamillion. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we do have that minute, and I can see why you want him to read that. So by all means, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just a, uh, a little forward on this. Um, this was written many years ago when... Uh, second and third and fourth generation antibiotics were coming out, cephalosporins. So this is called Cephamillion. When the drug companies have made billions, when the public has spent trillions, when the resistant bugs are in the zillions, will we be any better off than before? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, now we have resistant 
Well, yeah, thank you, thank you for that. And I think what we'll do with uh, is leave with a with a bit of actually, I mean, there's a, a smile in that question, but there's also a great amount of seriousness to it. I know that. Um, so, what I'd like to do though uh, is is to bring this to a close, is make a quick announcement or two before we say our final thank yous. Um, our next vital conversation with Teleosis Institute will be um, April 20th. Um, and that's going to be with Dr. Karen Wyatt, who will be speaking about the Seven Lessons Wisdom Path. And that specifically refers to Dr. Wyatt's experiences with end-of-life patients um, dealing with the, with the dying. So that's April 20th, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific. Um, but more to the point for this evening, thanks to everyone who joined us tonight. And again, a very special thanks to Dr. Tom Janice for sharing his, uh, his, his own writing with us, his, his insights into the power of uh, poetry and the written word in general to heal, and to Dr. Gary Huffaker, who's a member of the board here at Teleosis for, for joining us on this particular call. And with that, um, on behalf of that other doctor, Joel Kreisberg, who's uh, grace, gracefully and graciously been working tech for us as the founder and executive director of Teleosis Institute tonight. Um, I'm uh, Reggie Mara, Creative Director, and I'd like to say good night to everyone.